Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the launch of um, our special issue of Transition Magazine on blackness in Australia. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Sujatha Fernandes. I am uh, teach in, at, here at the University of Sydney in political economy and in the sociology departments. Um, and I'm very excited that we can all be here today to celebrate on the, um, the exciting uh, special issue and to listen to some of the voices that are part of this issue. So I want to just begin by giving a little bit of background to Transition Magazine, um, for those of you who don't know about it and about its history and, and about how we came to publish the special issue. So Transition is a magazine of Africa and the African diaspora, and it's based out of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard University. The magazine was founded in 1961 in Uganda as an East African literary magazine, and it quickly became a leading intellectual magazine in Africa, featuring work by Shinua Achebe, James Baldwin, Paul Thoreau, and others. It has had esteemed literary figures as editors, such as Wallace Oyinka and Henry Louis Gates, Jr. Above all, it's always had a deeply international outlook and has been a voice of contention, controversy, and radicalism amid political upheaval and change. So I sit on the editorial board of the magazine and I was invited by the editors to do a special issue on blackness in Australia. So together with my co-editor, Jared Thomas, and we're very sad that unfortunately he's not able to join us here today, um, but we were very fortunate to work with a number of leading Australian writers and scholars, uh, some of whom we're delighted to have present with us here today. So just a, a quick description of what the issue is on. So what the collection does, it brings together the voices and artwork of diverse black writers, artists, poets, and scholars in Australia. We use the sp particular spelling of black, B-L-A in brackets C-K, to be inclusive of the distinct experiences and histories of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and Afro-descendant peoples. During a heightened period of political struggle in the 60s and 70s, Aboriginal people of Australia began to refer to themselves as black. Other groups in Australia have also identified as black, including African Australians, African migrants and refugees, South Sea Islanders, Pacific Islanders, and many Afro-diasporic groups. Since the early 1990s, the alternative term black, B-L-A-K, has been used by Aboriginal people to claim their own unique histories and identities, independent of limiting phenotypical and romanticized conceptions of blackness. So in gathering together these voices, we hope to show the expansiveness of what it means to be black, but also to highlight the complexity of projects of black solidarity in this settler colonial nation. So just to give you an idea of some of the range of pieces that we have in this special issue, uh, we have poetry by Janine Leanne and Alison Whitaker, a piece by Victoria Greaves about the Aboriginal reggae artist Willie Brim, a short story by the uh, writer Tony Birch about the legendary Aboriginal boxer Lionel Rose, an article by Yadira Perez-Hazel on Black Lives Matter in Australia, a piece by Kaya Aboage on Afro-Indigenous encounters in the colonial era, a piece by Omid Tafigian on black bodies and political profit, 
and poems by Sudanese refugees Muhammad Adam and Has Hasabala, currently incarcerated on Manus Island, Papua New Guinea, by the Australian government, and also poetry by the Somalian poet Hani Abdil. The issue also features artwork by the artists Judy Watson, Vincent Namatjira, Richard Bell and Emery Douglas, Yoni Skes and Michael Cook. So I'm now delighted to introduce you to the speakers who are going to read from their work and then after that we'll have some time for a panel discussion and also some Q&A with the audience. So first we have Janine Leanne who is a Wiradjuri writer, poet and academic from southwest New South Wales. Her first volume of poetry, Dark Secrets After Dreaming, AD 1887 to 1961, won the Scanlon Prize for Indigenous Poetry in 2010, and her first novel, Purple Threads, won the David Unipon Award for an unpublished Indigenous writer in 2010. Janine has published widely in the area of Aboriginal litera literature, writing otherness, and creative nonfiction, and is the recipient of an Australian Research Council grant on Aboriginal literature. In 2017, Janine was a recipient of the Ujuru Nunakal Poetry Prize and the University of Canberra Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Poetry Prize. The manuscript for her second volume of poetry, Walk Back Over, was released in 2018 by Cordite Press. Um, I'm going to read one poem that I actually had in the issue and then just share with you two other poems about, well, I think, about blackness, um, in Australia. The first one's called Yelani Durbel, which in Wiradjuri means skin and bone. Yelani Durbel, skin and bone. Dudung, banang, fly in the wind. Dust and ash gather. In the beginning, Biami turns dust to skin, makes living bone, to walk country, to gather, scatter ashes to nourish. Country is red dust gathered, formed to rocks, sculpted to mountains, hollowed to gullies, dug to rivers, breathes life, shapes her children to walk, leaving only dust, ashes to scatter in the wind, to take only memories, gather up stories, track through country, tread lightly, carefully across its dreamings. And from my collection, Walk Back Over, this poem is called Unassimilated. Response to the assimilation policy. Grandmother was too black. You called her a nigger, coon, bung. Tried your best to rid you of us, but you didn't. Mother was too brown for you. Little half-caste, you spat, and you tried your best to assimilate her. She brushed off your whitewash. I was olive enough 
to confuse you. What kind of wog are you? Spanish, French, Italian, Maltese, some Johnny-come-lately, New Australians we call yous. What? You're an abo? Why'd you own up when you don't even look like one? I know who I am. My children, too pale for you. What's some kid with blonde hair doing calling themselves an abo? Kids as fair as my white ass. Must be a scam. Yeah, that's what it is. Get us taxpayers' hard-earned money for calling black now. Thought we bred out black fellas, but you didn't. We changed our outsides, but you never got what you wanted. We talk your talk now, stand up to your policies. Your assimilation failed to break black lines flowing from the heart. My grandmother, my mother, me, my children. So we call ourselves black today because you only change the surface, the skin that we are deeper than. My children's children and theirs live to remind you that you did not. Last one's called Real Australian Girl, 1975. Yeah, from my high school days. You're not a real Australian, spat the blonde, busty in the swelter of a schoolyard. You're an abo, a coon. I go home, stare at the mirror and think, maybe if I put a clothes head peg on my nose and pinch it like a beak, Get out that heavy hot iron mum uses to press dad's Sunday shirts crispy white and flatten every corkscrew curl on my mop head. Get some peroxide, bleach my hair platinum. Gouge out these chocolate lollipops I have for eyes. Replace them with something icy blue. Then a fillet knife slicing through these thick lips until they are wan, white, bloodless like Friday fish. And, if I stay out of the sun, read books about famous explorers, pioneers, adventurers, discovering frontiers, pristine wilds, finding paradises, overcoming droughts, floods, fires, and Aborigines. If I learn to sing Australia Fair like I believe it, will I be then a real Australian girl? Thank you. Okay, next we have Kaya Abouagye, who is a doctoral candidate at the University of Sydney in the Department of Sociology. Her research highlights the transcultural connections between Indigenous Australia and the global African diaspora. She would like to thank and acknowledge Wilo Muwauda, Kalkatunga Nation, Alawara of the East, Eastern Arendt, for the many philosophical discussions on indigeneity and blackness which contributed to her article, Australian Blackness. Uh, so my readings and some uh, some of the excerpts uh, from the article are based on my own research project, which contends that Indigenous and African diasporic people have engaged one another in Australia and throughout the Pacific in significant and substantial ways. The continent of Australia remains the ancestral homeland for one of the world's oldest living and continuing black civilizations in the world, with songlines of connection 
that spread out to the rest of the global black world. There are long histories of trade and connection between people of colour and African and Indigenous relationships, both within and outside of Australia, have been extensive and unexamined. The black bicultural landscape of Australia is a rich confetti of many black identifying people. Many people of Australian African, of the, many people of the African diaspora are in Australia, including African Americans, black Brits, Haitians, people of Afro-Caribbean descent, first and second generation continental Africans. Blackness is also embodied across the black Pacific Melanesians, Polynesians, Micronesians, Pacific Pacifica Islanders, all who are revelations from neighbouring islands, such as the Torres Straits, Vanuatu, Fiji, South Sea Islanders, Papuan, Maori, these are just a few. Each of their experiences include expressions of blackness. Relationships across and in between, a shared kinship, or interconnected spheres of influence and historical connection to the African diaspora that weaves itself back to Aboriginal Australia, Black Australia. The production of meaningful ideas and interpretations of those ideas help to give us nuanced and complex understandings about the shared connectedness between First Nations mob, the Black Pacific, and people of the global African diaspora that is unique to the situation in Australia. It was said by the historian Cassandra Pybus that one of the many tragedies of race relations in Australia today includes the failure to accord any space to intersectional stories of people of colour who were not Aboriginal, especially those of the African diaspora. But any exploration of blackness in Australia must start with its first black people. It is also important to establish from the outset that concepts such as blackness and indigeneity can often be two distinct yet intersecting and concentric ideas that reveal the particular nature of black Australia and its discursive field of black Australianness. First Nations people consist of two culturally distinct black groups, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders born inheritors and custodians of the land, black people who have survived and continue to survive the violent and brutal invasion of European colonisation. Despite the devastating initial impact and the subsequent intergenerational trauma, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people continue to staunchly assert their sovereignty. It is Indigenous sovereignty that serves as an omnipresent reminder to white Australia of its black past. Being both black-skinned people and indigenous to the land, the global paradigm of blackness has often resonated with black First Nations people in Australia, and it has been historically adopted to suit the Aboriginal and, Australia, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander context. Many identify politically with both the embodied and the conceptual politics of blackness. However, we must address the complexity of terminology and what is, it that we, what is it that we mean by the word blackness? What does it mean in the Australian context? It must not be conflated with ideas about colour and colourism in the same way that it might apply elsewhere in the world. The term black here 
is not just biology or colour. It is used to assert political positioning. It is a position that aims to subvert the ongoing project of colonisation that is distinct to the Australian settler context. The political project of blackness in Australia is a dissident subversion, speaking back to a colonial regime of eugenics that came to be known the Stolen Generation. This 60-year agenda that saw decades of Australian government policy forcibly remove Indigenous children from their families in an effort to physically breed out the black colour gradation from the skin and the black consciousness from the minds. This agenda is just one political dimension that filters through the complexity of the use of the term black and by whom and to what interest. Our nation's foundation story of blackness commences with this history of biological annihilation, biological assimilation, which has meant it is not unusual or uncommon for, black, for Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people to identify and be accepted as black despite the colour of their skin. For Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, identification with blackness is inherently an embodied politics of resistance rather than a politics of biology and race. It is not so much about replicating the colonizers' attempt to assign and categorize quantums of blood or measure racist gradations of black skin. It is rather about an act of resistance that subverts these ideas, transcends the efforts of the colonial nation state and their interest in eradicating black civilizations and black sovereignty. Indigenous Australians utilise blackness as a form of political assertion to their right to exist and live and claim a distinctly Indigenous blackfellow way of cultural being and living. Indigenous Australians maintain sovereign and an, and an Indigenous worldview that is outside of the domineering Eurocentric paradigms of the West. It is this framework that helps us to understand the same, at the same time the problematic nature of the world's largest black international movement right now, Black Lives Matter. In her 2017 article in The Conversation, Aboriginal and South Sea Islander academic Dr. Chelsea Bond... Who's incarcerated in the Australian-run Island, what they call a regional Black are not seeking center. a revitalised citizenship that recognises our dignity and our humanity. He we was killed upon on Christmas Eve 2016. We refuse to talk about our lives independent of our land. We remind them every day we are still here in this place and it is their, pre it is their presence on our lands that poses the real problem, not our lives. We refuse to appeal to the benevolence of the colonisers for our lives to matter because we know that their existence on this continent remains legally predicated on our non-existence. Chelsea's article tells us something about the complexity that permeates the contours of what is unique to blackness in Australia. Often the secret histories of settler colonial Australia erased the human face and the biography of black Afro-Australian figures from its history. However, the work of historians Cassandra Pybus and Ian Duffield transformed the way that we imagined early colonial Australia. Their work confirms the highly racialized nature of Australian settlement, challenging the idea of whiteness in Australia's foundation narrative. In Pybus's book, Black Founders, 
she provides the historical evidence that between 1788 and the middle of the 19th century, almost every single convict ship carried people of the African diaspora to New South and Van Diemen's land. Many of the Africans who arrived in Australia were British loyalists, formerly enslaved people who fought with the British during the American Revolution. White settlers and soldiers brought African servants, while some settlers were themselves of the African diaspora. Each of the port communities of the colonies included plenty of African-American and Afro-Caribbean sailors. Despite the foundation narrative of Australia, it has erased its African history in much the same way it has attempted to erase Indigenous history in an effort to promulgate an uncomplicated racial divide. According to Pybus, uh, sorry, critically analysing settler accounts from the 17th century help us establish a timeline, a timeline to examine how black people of African descent and Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders have been historically positioned against each other. Written accounts of African and Indigenous encounters provide not only a small glimpse into the discursive realm of recorded Afro-Indigenous encounters, they also show us the need to recover these histories from, from the archive with critical interpretation. What Contench, he was a central figure in, the, uh, in colonial Australian history, a prolific diarist on the First Fleet, and he observed in his diary in 1759 that their Aboriginal people, their colour, Mr Cook, he is inclined to think is rather a deep chocolate than an absolute black, though he confesses that they have the appearance of the later, which he attributes to the greasy filth that their skins are loaded with. Of the want of cleanliness, we have had sufficient proof, but I am of the opinion all the washing in the world would not render them two degrees less black than an African Negro. At some of our first interviews, we had several drool instances of their mistaking them with the Africans we brought with us for, our own, for their own countrymen. So the writings of Wat Contench are particularly important for the Afro-Indigenous archive because they show us the divisive logic of the white Australian imagination at the time of settlement. In more of Tench's writings, he exemplifies the attempts to explain how inferior the Aboriginals are when compared to the subtle African or the elegant and timid islander of the South Seas. Um, a critical Indigenous interpretation of Tench's analysis demonstrates how settler discourses work to produce racialized hierarchies of blackness, or as Alan Chadwick in his book Trans-Indigenous Methodologies uh, would describe, hierarchies of oppression or legitimacy or authenticity that serve only the interests of the settler, his culture, his power, his nation state. Early settler discourses not only reveal the compulsion to create categories of blackness, to assign relationships between blacks, attribute causes for aspects of blackness, or to justify their acts of colonization. This logic highlights some of the ways in which people of, the Af of African descent 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander have been pitted against each other. Therefore, in our work towards the recovery of these stories and the reclaiming of our histories, black communities must also develop processes and culturally relevant processes that help us to clarify the state of our black on black relations in order to not only highlight some of the nuances around what it means to be and embody blackness in Australia, but to better or more fully explore the intersections between blackness and indigeneity. So next we have Yadira Perez Hazel, who is a cultural anthropologist born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and raised in the South Bronx to Puerto Rican parents. Dr. Perez Hazel's work pushes to uncover the insidious practices and structures of white privilege. She has published on issues of national and racial identity, migration, and belonging, and has worked with nonprofits and art institu arts institutions on developing and conducting effective community-based research. Dr. Perez Hazel is currently an honorary fellow at Melbourne University, working on contemporary articulations of black, black identity in Australia, and its connection to community building and resistance. Thank you. The piece I want to share with you is in the Transition magazine. Um, it's less academic. It's much more about being, being a witness of the connections, the community building that I've been seeing. So in some ways, this piece is amplifying the many works of people on the ground looking to build community in resistance. The identity category of black in Australia represents the lives, histories, culture, and identities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, African Australians, African migrants, African diasporic peoples, be they Caribbean, Latin American, North American, from the US, from Canada, from Europe, Southeast Islanders, Pacific Islanders. On a national level, Black Australia usually represents, refers to over 500 different First People clan groups and or nations. They are also known as the Blackfellas. They are the traditional owners of the continent known as Australia. Locally, Black Australians acts as a continuously expanding umbrella category and includes various non-Aboriginal communities of which African migrant communities are the fastest growing. The histories, paths, and challenges of these black lives are different in content, intensity, and impact. They come together through shared black identities and histories of resistance to colonizing powers. The Black Lives Movement in the United States, of which my piece talks about, began as a response to the acquittal of police officers and vigilante murders of black Americans. It grew into a global movement with over 40 chapters worldwide. In 2017, the Black Lives, black Lives Matter movement in Australia has provided a platform from which local organizations, community groups, current and future activists, artists, agitators, voiced and invited action against various social, environmental, and humanitarian issues. Where the names of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Sarah Bland hold significance to amplifying and forming black power movements in the US, birds, 
an indigenous rapper, points to the fact that it is the murders of Mururunji, Elijah, Yok, Hickey, and the, the Boroughville children, and the indifference of white Australian that define Aboriginal lives in Australia. The US Black Lives Matter movement is a global movement that provides a national spotlight in Australia of the local communities who have been leading activism for quite a long time. Both, communities, both countries share a history, a present, and a seemingly reluctant future to transform the structures of inequality and violence that kill and are disadvantaging the black community. Black people in both economically rich communities are dying at disproportionate rates in the hands of police officers, vigilantes, and medical professionals. For black Americans, the fight is for justice and liberation in a land in which they were enslaved and used to render the native population invisible and captive. Black Americans negotiate belonging in a colonizing country they were stolen and forced to build, yet was not built to include them. For black Aboriginal Australians, the fight is for their self-determination and sovereignty over their land. There can be no justice without having control and access to the lands. Thus, in addition to the fights to reform the prison systems and deaths in custody, stop the taking and or killing of their children, black Australians are fighting multiple fights to restore their right to land, to stop the closure of their remote communities, and to gain varying degrees of power via self-determination, recognition, and sovereignty. Black Lives Matter is a powerful political statement in both of these countries. It provides a global and pan-black solidarity among multiple ethnicities and clans, mobs, which with differing perspectives on issues and solutions. There is a solidarity against white supremacy, yet this solidarity, especially here in Australia, must continue to grow in very careful appreciation of the particularities of oppression and the necessity of Aboriginal self-determination as, self, as a form of social justice for all. At this point, for black Australians, solidarity isn't worth it if it becomes a, a participation in the oppression or the uh, Olympics oppression. In this piece, I position my writing of black lives in Australia at the center of my own experience, practices, and relationships. My perspectives are molded by a journey from the South Bronx, where I was raised, to Melbourne, Australia, where I settled two years ago with my partner and two children. I do not speak for indigenous and other black communities in Australia. I am a voice, at most an interlocutor of this diverse community of communities. And from within this community, I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where I live now, work and dream. I acknowledge that I stand on Aboriginal stolen land. I would also like to pay respects to their elders past and present and emerging. This piece creates a space for the reading of black lives in Australia along the conceptual meeting grounds of dialogue, journeys, and communities of resistance and healing. So now, let me tell you a little bit about what I bore witness to. It was a sunny morning in July, and my girlfriend and I went to the Black Lives Matter march in Melbourne. We arrived to Melbourne Central Station, walked quietly to the Victoria State Library, 
where we were both anxious and excited to see several dozen people, including holding signs. There were hundreds of us. We were told that in Sydney there were thousands. We were not competing. We began to chat. We began to chant, Black Lives Matter, and no justice, no peace, no racist police, as we all started our march towards Flinders Station. Almost from every turn, I saw youth, teenagers, 20-year-olds, heck, even younger, young 30-, 40-year-olds, they're still young, of all shades, marching and representing their blackness, their humanity, with no need to bundle up in several layers and puffy coats, which you would assume in Melbourne. Melbourne protesters, Melbourne protesters' clothes represented another intervention to current state of whiteness. All black everything. T-shirts that demanded justice, accessories with African prints, backpacks with the black, red, and yellow Aboriginal flag. Protesters put their bodies center stage. Swanson Street swelled with the buzz of marchers and shoppers who attempted to continue business as usual while dodging hundreds of posters that read, lest we forget the frontier wars, black lives. Stop broken windows policing. No justice, no peace, no racist police, no room for racism. Black Lives Matter, stop Aboriginal deaths in custody, 365. The march arrived at one of the busiest in intersections in Melbourne, Flinders Street and Swanston, led by six police officers on horses and several others in cars. The crowd chanted, we won't stop, we just want peace, then switched into a strong unified mantra, Black Lives Matter. And within a few minutes, someone in the crowd turned, dropped the beat, and the crowd joined in a melodious chorus of Kendrick Lamar's heavy hitter, We Gonna Be All Right. It was an affirmation, not a question. It was history telling and future making. Someone asked the crowd for silence. We all stood encircling the center of the intersection. It was there that several rows of people sat as their voices launched into another chant. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. The march ended right there at that intersection. Eight months later, on, mon on the morning of November 4th, Auntie Diane Kerr stood in a large meeting space in the Aboriginal Advancement League in Thornberry, Melbourne. Surrounded by pictures of elders and paintings that spoke of Wurundjeri's creation stories and delivered a powerful welcome to country, she spoke and said, I talk on their behalf. I am proud to be a First Nations person. I am proud to be a Wurundjeri elder, a traditional custodian of this area, Melbourne, and broader area. It is my duty to welcome people, and it is also my duty to ask the people to follow the laws of Bunjil, who is my creator. Those laws are not to harm the land and the waterways, and not to harm any of our children. So it is about respecting country, and it is about respecting people. I think they are very simple laws, but strong laws, and we really need to do that. There were a hundred of us in the room, we listened intently, some of us with tears in our eyes, absorbing her message about respect and responsibility. She acknowledged that in this morning of November 4th, it was the first time seeing such a group of people together, a group of Aboriginal and 
non-Aboriginal people of color sitting together at the Aboriginal Advancement League, the oldest Aboriginal organization in Australia. Each of us went there to participate in the Black Lives Matter organizing exchange, the first in Australia. The event was organized by a large and diverse group of people and organizations via planning process facilitated by several community and nonprofit international organizations. Several groups of people knew each other. Some had even participated in other social justice events together before. But this was the first time the entire group of people had ever come together under a Black Lives Matter community organizing event. This full day event was prompted by the presence of Black Lives Matter founder and leader Patrice Cullors, the co-founder in the US. Yet, it was made possible only by the easy activation of dozens of organizations and hundreds of individuals who are continuously grinding on issues of social justice, self-determination, and human rights for decades here in Australia. The exchange was not about creating a Black Lives Matter movement or even a chapter here in Australia. Instead, it was about listening to the Black Lives Matter and First Nation leaders' stories of oppression, trauma, and survival and resistance. It was about celebrating art and performances such as Wurundjeri creation dances that were once banned and persecuted. It was about meeting other people of color in a safe space and creating changes in our communities and possibly building a more powerful movement together. The seven hour day was filled with listening, discussing. At every stage of the day, the group carried out Auntie Diane's request. We got to know each other. We saw our pains, fears, fire, and vitality, even in the midst of exhaustion. By the end of the day, the space that we created provided for the unexpected release of trauma. Patrice Kuller called it a healing justice and stated that it is a necessary part of all movements to decolonize and liberate. We ended the day chanting an Asada Shakur quote, inviting each other to, to future social justice events and cleaning up the beautiful meeting room that we shared. In the end, there was no political action agenda created. What was created was the development of new kinds of relationships with each other. With that, we saw the possibility of journeying together as we promised. So um, now we have Omer Tafigian, who is a lecturer, researcher, and community advocate. His current roles include Assistant Professor in Philosophy at the American University of Cairo, Honorary Research Associate for the Department of Philosophy at the University of Sydney, Faculty at Iran Academia, and Campaign Manager for Why Is My Curriculum White, Australasia. He contributes to community arts and cultural projects and works with refugees, migrants, and youth. He's author of Myth and Philosophy in Platonic Dialogues and the translator of Behu's Buchani's new book, No Friend But the Mountains, Writing from Manus Prison. So I'm going to start by uh, quoting Faisal's brother, Saleh, who is still in Sudan with the rest of Faisal's family. When we were told Faisal died, we were shocked. 
Because Faisal was the only person we were counting on to transform our lives from this refugee camp to a safe world. We don't actually know how he died, and the only thing we know is he was sick. He told me so many times that he was sick, but I have no idea how he injured his head. Faisal Ishak Ahmed died on Christmas Eve 2016. He had escaped war-torn Sudan after enduring a life full of affliction and adversity. In 2004, his family moved into the Kassab refugee camp in Darfur. At that time, Faisal was only 13 years old. He survived the tortuous journey from Sudan through Egypt, Malaysia, and Indonesia. At last, on a riding boat with 90 other people, Faisal was picked up on the water and taken to Australia's Christmas Island. From there, in September 2013, the Australian government forcibly transferred him to a prison camp on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. There he was processed by the authorities and determined to be a refugee. After three years in the Manus Island offshore, offshore prison, Faisal collapsed. His body and mind gave out under the pressures inflicted on him by the Australian detention system. During his time imprisoned on Manus, he suffered from extreme stress related to the situation of his family in Sudan and numerous health issues. He would lose conscious, consciousness and collapse often, and he suffered constant pain in his heart and head. But the prison me prison's medical staff, International Health and Medical Services, or IHMS, misdiagnosed Faisal, ignored and doubted his claims, and mistreated him. He was eventually flown to Australia, where he died in a Brisbane hospital. I'm now going to read uh, part of Hass Hasabala's article. Uh, and it's, part of it is... Uh, is expressing who he is and uh, how he's, he's come to the situation or how he feels about the situation um, of being imprisoned on Manus and also a very important poem that details the very specific kind of torture that's inflicted on people in the camp, in the prison camp. My name is Has Hazabala. I am a Sudanese man from Darfur. I've been detained in Australia's offshore detention centre on Manus Island for nearly five years. It is frustrating to see a country like Australia, which is perceived to be a great nation, now becoming a country that tortures people. And Australia, as a member of the United Nations, is part of a global community that claims to protect the vulnerable. Believe me, Australia, you are on the wrong side of history. It does not matter how brutal you are. Days of freedom await us. And this is from his poem, Time, Torture, and Tomorrow. Dear Time, Time, if you are a healer, would you please accelerate time? Time, take us to the other shore. Then, would you take your time? Take your time to penetrate. Penetrate deep inside. Take your time to treat all the misery. Take your time to treat all the wounds. Time, would you please slow down? Then, let us catch up. Let us catch up with a stolen life. Life, enjoy it. Life, live it. Lord, time is yours.
This part of my paper is about my interaction with Hani Abdile, the spoken word poet, um, originally from Somalia, who spent 11 months on Christmas Island as an unaccompanied minor. She's now on a bridging visa here in Australia. I ask Hani, have you been contacted by feminist groups or received support from them in any way? She responds, feminist groups? Is that an organization? So this part of my paper is about the importance of acknowledging um, intersectional discrimination. Mm. This conversation between me and Hani lays bare the problem of exclusion in social justice campaigns, which neglect displaced and exiled persons. For instance, consider how there was little or no discussion of refugee women and girls within the Me Too campaign. The plight of refugees has yet to occupy a central role in feminist activism in Australia. Support for the incarceration of women and girls in immigration detention has primarily come from refugee advocates and various human rights organisations. However, the need for robust discussion and immediate action is dire, and women's rights organisations must answer this need. Empowerment of non-citizen women and girls is pivotal to the feminist movement. In addition to the women and girls in detention, we must also work to reunify women and girls with their fam male family members who are either detained in community detention or settled in Australia and waiting for their visa applications to be processed and accepted. While these men wait, many of their female family members remain in precarious situations in their country of origin or in transit countries. According to a statement written by Abian, a Somali woman detained on Nauru, was detained on Nauru, I'm just going to read her statement. I was raped on Nauru. I've been very sick. I never said that I did not want a termination. I never saw a doctor. I saw a nurse at a clinic, but there was no counselling. I saw a nurse at Villawood, the Villawood Immigration Detention Centre in Sydney, but there was no interpreter. I asked, but I was not allowed to talk with my lawyer. Please help me. Abian is now living in Australia. She never got the termination. I'm going to finish by um, reading part of Muhammad Adams' article. Um, and also, we're very lucky tonight because we have a special message from Muhammad uh, who sent me the message through WhatsApp to read to you all tonight. I'll finish with that. So this is from his article. My name is Muhammad Adam. I am from Sudan, Darfur, Lubudal. In 2003, the war broke out in my homeland. In 2004, my village, Lubadao, was burned down by the Janjaweed militia with full support from the Sudanese government. Many people were killed, women were raped, and everything was looted by the Janjaweed militia. I spent my whole childhood in the Kalma refugee camp for displaced people and was eventually forced to flee the country I was born in. War has killed our people. War has tortured our people. War has traumatised our people. War has ravaged our country. And now, on Manus Island, the Australian government is doing the same. What kind of law imprisons innocent people for five years? We deserve protection, not punishment. And yet, during my time here on Manus, I've been beaten, I've been humiliated, I've been insulted. This treatment was so extreme on the day that Papua New Guinea immigration and local police forces tried to forcibly remove us from the first camp. 
I've been betrayed by the Australian government. I've been swapped and sold like a slave. I've been treated like an animal in this prison. Muhammad's special message to us. You know, I'm really, really so grateful and pleased to share our thoughts, our toughest stories with you today. But these are just a small part of our stories from the Manus and Nauru detention centers. I'm only sharing some of my friends and my stories with you. A more comprehensive history will take decades to be told. Actually, it's very hard for someone who has never experienced this kind of inhumanity, never encountered these kinds of violations against their rights, or never been face to face with severe conflict in their lives to understand what I'm saying. This situation is hard to believe for those who do not have an accurate account or realization of what it means to be a refugee. It's hard if you have a constrained or limited view of what a refugee is supposed to be, and it's hard to grasp exactly what I've written here. These are true stories of the dehumanization of innocent lives locked up in a high-risk malaria zone. These are also the stories of children being devastated by the Australian government. We've been surviving here in this place by listening to the stories of other people, listening to people who have faced the same inhumane violations, stories of all people here, regardless of their nationalities. These people have endured violence from states and by the international community, and they give us inspiration and hope. They inspired us to keep fighting for our freedom using peaceful means. Eventually, everything's going to be all right. Thank you. Okay, thank you, everyone. Um, I think we're going to move on to the Q&A right now. So um, if anybody in the audience has questions or would like to um, speak, please raise your hand. Um. Hello. Um, I'm a study abroad student from North Carolina. So I understand and study being heritage of forced removal of the African diaspora. Um, uh, you speak faster than I talk, so I tried to write it down. You said, black people must create culturally relevant methods of clarifying black on black relations. So my question to that would be, what are some of the conflicts between people who experience indigeneity here and those brought here through forced removal? And how can, or what methods are being in work now to kind of solve those conflicts? Mm. Well, <clears throat> there are a number of projects that are taking place all over the world with Indigenous people um, and within the Australian situation and within the academy in particular, there is a big um, move towards Indigenous knowledges as a movement that is, enables a process for people to actually start to come together to begin to understand conceptually what is the state of, of our being, what is the state of uh, indigenous ways of doing and knowing, and then what is the relationship of that in relation to others, that includes other black people. So I would say the starting point would be to going and seeking the literature, finding out what black people, first and foremost, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander scholars are saying are productive and meaningful ways forward. Um, they map the history and the implications and where th the vision for the future might be. Uh, how, do we <clears throat> how do we untangle this very complex and complicated 
intertwined history and dissect that in a way that is not just black, white, same, same. You know, it's, it, it's a nuanced and complex situation and other countries are in the process of doing it. Australia's still got a very long way to go. We've still got, um, you know, even just having a basic understanding that there were African people here at the same time as the white settlers, as well as every other kind of nationality at that time, and it was a highly multi-racialised process. And so, what does that then mean? Um, like uh, Vanessa's question in the back, uh, you know, what is that connection? How do we deconstruct that and understand the, you know, what does that mean in terms of our relations, and how has that informed our present situation? Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, I would I would point you in the direction of finding out some of the um, some of the key writers in this field um, who are sorting through the thinking around these ideas. Hello, hi. Um, my name is Alex. Um, I'm an Australian citizen now. Um, my background is uh, Bosnia and Germany. So I uh, was connected to two countries and in, in, in that genocide has happened in this, and my family was touched by that. So I think uh, one of the issues that probably the black community has is they're not com um, connected by ideology. Uh, they're connected by superficiality of the color of the skin. Um, if, if you have, uh, um, when you're in a nation and someone invades you, they are connected by an ideology because they believe what they're doing is in the best interest of, of their country or, or their idea. So what I wanted to ask, what has um, been different in New Zealand? Yeah, we can see there it's playing out completely different than in Australia. We have a prime minister that has called their young baby an indigenous name, a Maori name, and they seem to have dealt with indigenous community in a different way, with a different respect, in a different inclusion. So maybe Australia can learn from that. What can we learn from that? I just want to respond to that. Yeah. Uh it's not a great idea to compare Australia with Aotearoa, um, partly because um, the, the Māori population is about a fifth of the population. We're like about 3% of the population. That's come up. At one point, we were less than 1% of the population. The Māori's always been at least a fifth of the population. Also, they've spoken the same language from the top of the country down to the bottom, whereas we have about 500 here or so. Um, so the situation is not comparable and comparisons on the whole don't help. And um, neither does competition for victim spaces. Um, and that's, yeah. And that's kind of like also a concern of mine. And that's what really impacts a lot, I reckon, on progress. Is this an activism? Is that competition for a comparison? Why aren't you like this or why don't you do that? And that competition around who is the biggest victim. And I'm more interested in who's the survivors and what you do, and there isn't a, yeah, there is an issue about conflating the two blacknesses, or more, whatever, blackness in Australia, 
there is, there is some value in looking at a post experience on that, but there is also a danger in conflating them and putting them together um, because you have to start with um, the blackness that was here and that was always here. You have to start by reading our books and our stories first. And in terms of this competition about, you know, who has had the most to put up with is just is odious and false conscious and part of the problem, really, of what paralyzes people. Yeah. Hello. Hi. Um, so I think this whole idea of defining blackness is interesting. Um, I suppose, is there anyone that's exploring the diverse experiences? I see the refugee experience. I want to see something around the Somalian experience or the Egyptian experience or the West African experience, because I feel like they're very different. So if anyone's kind of got something on that or is exploring that. I would say towards that, I think this is part of the space to, this is, these are only a few of the writings to show work that is being done and gaps in knowledge that still needs to be done. Um, fundamentally, I think in every piece here, what you will hopefully walk away with is that there is a nuance to blackness in Australia that must be upheld. There cannot be, <laughs> and there, there must not be a oppression Olympics at the end of this, right? And also, I think even when we listen to the very, let's just talk about blackness. When we listen to the diverse black experiences, the comparison gets us nowhere. And what we have to be, even, even within my own challenges, my own um, experiences of racism, of, you know, of classism, I still must also acknowledge the privilege that my American passport has, right? Mm -hmm. Here in Australia and, and even amongst African migrants, right? So, what I want to say is that whether your story fits that tired, tried, beaten down migrant story or not, right? Listening, listening, learning is at the crux of whatever progress is going to be, right? At the end of it, we don't want to say, hey, well, you know, I, I worked hard and I don't, I wasn't the migrant story that you think I am. Yes, that is true. However, are you being complicit, right, in the disadvantages, the inequalities that still exist in order to position yourself as not them, right, yeah. as other? Mm. So it, it is a nuanced struggle that we must not let go of, right? I don't think at the end of the day we want to say blackness is this, right? Mm -hmm. Let's do the unwork of unpacking, unpacking white supremacy it. that says, I can package you. You can't. Mm -hmm.
Also, the first poem that I read was about country, which I think only mm. black Australians have that here. Mm. And that connection to a particular country, which is not the nation. So that's an important thing that Absolutely. defines black Australians as well. Absolutely. And that's the backbone, I think, of blackness in Australia, even though a lot of people don't live on country, is how they can connect to that or the island that they may come from. And that people forget that in their grander theories of blackness is the connectedness of place and the different view of land that Aboriginal people or Australian Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people have. Yeah, I'd like to add on that. I think that is one of the things, one of the aspects that connects other Indigenous people globally to the black Aboriginal experience or Torres Strait Islander experience on this country. It is that connection to country and knowledge of country and what that means to be an Indigenous person is to know country and spirit. It's an embodied, lived experience. And I think that experience is complex and diverse. And I think that is uh, maybe one starting point of the conversation for other black people who also have a connection to their countries elsewhere, what makes them uh, a Ghanaian Australian is that connection to Ghana, the country, that place. So um, that's just one example, going back to uh, your questions over there. So um, exploring that, I think, is a, is a really important and pivotal defining aspect of black Australianness. Um, there's one over here. I just might add um, a little bit about our process in, in sort of as editors, myself and Jared Thomas, having conversations, our decisions to include um, black refugees, non-Aboriginal um, uh, black voices in this, in this issue on blackness in Australia. And one of the things that Jared felt strongly about was he said that um, he's always invited to all of these things, attempting to sort of celebrate um, African and uh, Aboriginal histories together and sort of bring them together and there's and he sort of sees so many of these kind of things that don't really kind of engage with and interrogate the relationships between those communities and so part of what we were looking at was, you know, I think as, as, as others have said and as is really embodied by all of the contributions to this special issue is really interrogating that concept and really trying to think about the nuances as, as Yadira was saying. Well, we actually have to finish up now, unfortunately. We are at the end of our time, but thank you so much to the speakers and to all of you for coming here today. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.